The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Amen. So this text is very deep, very difficult, very complex. It mentions an allegory. It mentions women in labor. So this morning, this sermon gave birth to two sermons. So rest easy. There's no way we're getting through this in one sermon. Thank God for that. Thank God for the wisdom to say there's no way that we're going to skip through this thing and go lightly. What I want to do is go through the text all the way through and give you what I consider the simple interpretation of these words. Next week, I want to go deeper and look more at the meat or the difficulties and the allegory that Paul brings us. I'm going to mention allegory this time. I'm going to touch on it lightly, but I'm not going to go into detail this time on what Paul is doing with this allegory. What I want to do is make very plain and clear the simple lesson of these verses. What is Paul saying to you? To each one of us. And I'll just say it straight out. I believe what Paul is saying here is that every single one of us who are genuine Christians, we are miracles of grace. We are Christians because God has interfered with our lives, has stepped into time and space by his sovereign grace and changed everything. And we have been made children of the living God by sovereign grace. And we ought to live like it. Look with me at verse 29. This is where I'm getting it from. At the end, in verse 29, he says, At that time, the son born in the ordinary way, that's NIV, son born according to the flesh, in the simple, straightforward, natural way, the ordinary son persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. So we see the, the Ishmael symbolism and the Isaac symbolism leading to two realities. They're just two different kinds of people in this world. There are people who are born in the natural way, and then there are people who are born supernaturally. And if you're a child of God, you have been born supernaturally, and you ought to know it. And you ought to give thanks for it every day, and you ought to live according to that birth. So that's the simple, straightforward message. Now, Paul roots it in very deep things. But I want you to understand this message If you're a Christian, you're a miracle of grace. And I say it directly to you, it doesn't matter how you came to faith in Christ. I've spoken to people at the time of baptism and they need to give a testimony of how they came to faith. And some who are born in good Christian families who were raised under the hearing of the gospel who never knew a time that they didn't know Jesus. Maybe their parents spoke the gospel to them while they were still in the womb. I did. Please don't think that's weird, but I did that with all five of my kids. I told them to repent and believe in Jesus, all of them, and that they needed to come to faith, and I wanted them to come to an early conversion. I wanted them to come to faith in Christ early, and so it's easy for someone raised in that circumstance to say, I have no testimony. Let me tell you something. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God, that God raised him from the dead, if you have called on him because you know that you're a sinner, you're a child of grace doesn't matter how you came to those convictions. I think it's better to come to an early conversion and not run in sin for a while. Sin never does us any good. If, on the other hand, like me, 
You were converted in your adult years, and you remember distinctly times when you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And you also have a testimony of grace, and you are no less or more a child of sovereign grace than someone born in that other circumstance and living through that. I just want you to know, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and He died on the cross in your place for your sins, and that you have called on Him, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, you've called on Him for forgiveness of sins, and you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, the testimony that you are a child of God, you are a miracle of grace. And you ought to know it. And you ought to live like an Isaac and not like an Ishmael. All right, that's the simple lesson of these verses. But there's nothing simple about this text. I hope some of you are having some pity and compassion on me as Taylor was reading that text. Well, I'm glad I'm not the pastor. What's he going to do with this allegory? What's he going to do? What indeed? So I actually bought another week of time to answer that question. But I have some ideas. Paul in verse 21 is speaking directly to some people who apparently seem to want to live under the law. Do you see it? Verse 21. You who want to be under the law. Tell me. He's speaking them to these Galatians. To be under the law. What does that mean to be under the law? Well, it means to rely on self-effort at keeping the law. To rely on yourself to get into or maintain a right relationship with God. That's what it means to be under the law. John Piper puts it this way, to look on the law as a job description for earning the wages of God's favor. You know what a job description is? When you get a job, there's some bulleted things you're going to be responsible for. If you do these things, you can be a good employee of this company. You won't get fired. This is what you're supposed to do in this position. And so the legalist, the person who is under the law, has in the law a job description in order to maintain a good relationship with God. You have to earn God's smile. You have to earn his favor. You have to earn his approval. You have to earn right standing with God. You have to come into it by your own efforts, and you have to keep it or maintain it by your own efforts. That's what it means to be under the law. Paul here calls it slavery. It's slavery. It's bondage. Why would you want to live in that kind of bondage? Why would you want to live as a slave like that? Tim Keller, in commenting on this text, says, I think he does a great job of just diagnosing the kind of people there are in this world. He says there are four types of people when it comes to these issues. First, there are law-abiding, law-relying people. Law-abiding Law-relying people. They live in constant reliance on their own obedience to the moral standard. That's been given by God, the law of Moses. They tend to be smug, self-righteous, and superior. But they also, ironically, tend to be deep down insecure. So they're touchy and sensitive to criticism. They're irritable. They tend to shoot the messenger if anyone comes and says there's anything wrong with them. They're devastated when their prayers go unanswered. This could be people from other religions, actually, who are living up to some moral standard, but also people who go to church can live like this. This describes a lot of the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Secondly, you've got law-disobeying, law-relying people. Law-disobeying, law-relying people. These are people who have a developed religious conscience based on strong works righteousness. 
but they're failing to live up to it consistently. Therefore, they're more humble and brokenhearted than, than the first group, more tolerant of others, but they're guilt-ridden, and they're given to despair. They may attend church, but they stay on the outskirts, on the periphery of church life because they feel so worthless spiritually. They know that they're sinners, but their only remedy is to try harder, and that only leads to more depression. Third category, law disobeying, not law relying. Law disobeying, not law relying. These people have thrown off the concept of God's holy laws. They've thrown off the idea of a moral standard coming from God. They are totally secular and relativistic, or they are vague spiritually. They invent and choose their own moral standards. They put it together a la carte, like a golden corral, just putting on the, on the tray what they want. And so they put their own moral system together. And then they try to live up to that standard. Thus, they are often in many ways just as judgmental as the Pharisees. By the way, are you feeling that? We're judged if we don't live up to their odd moral standards these days. If you don't stand up and give a, a, you know, a standing ovation at key moments, as has happened even this week, you're wicked, you're evil, you're judged by this new kind of Pharisee, Pharisee. They're trying to earn their own version of salvation by feeling morally superior to others. But their system of righteousness is self-invented, it's self-defined, self-assessed. It's a third category. Then the fourth category, you're hoping you're in here somewhere, right? Fourth category, law obeying, not law relying. These are spirit-filled Christians who understand the gospel and are living out the freedom of the gospel. They obey God's moral law by the power of the Spirit in the grateful joy of knowing that they're totally secure. They're adopted sons and daughters of God. They know that they're failures, and they do fail, but their failures are covered by the grace of God in Christ. However, most Christians in this category still struggle and tend to see the world from time to time either as a number one, a Pharisee, or as a number two, a law-relying failure. Or a number three, a secular moralist. We all struggle and go back in some ways to that from time to time. And the degree to which they have these false views is the degree to which they are impoverished spiritually. So that's Tim Keller. I think he does a great job of analyzing these things. Where do you fit in that matrix? And what do you struggle with even if you are in number four? So we're coming to the issue here in which Paul is addressing directly those who apparently want to live under the law. And he uses an allegory based on the Old Testament to teach the same principle that he's been teaching, which is that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. It's not based on self-effort in the law. So let's give a little bit of review here and let's try to get you know, our bearings some of you may, maybe haven't been with us through, through all the time we've been preaching in Galatians. Galatians, one of the most powerful writings in the history of the human race. It's only 147 verses. It's a very, very short writing. And yet explosive in its implications, in its ramifications for the human race. It searches out some of the deepest issues of human experience. Maybe the deepest one. How can a sinner like me stand in a right relationship with a holy God? How can we be in a right relationship with God? So Paul is writing to Galatian churches that he planted. 
He was there uh, sharing the gospel. And, and he proclaimed the clear, pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Of him crucified, resurrected, of repentance and faith in Christ. For the forgiveness of sins. They heard the gospel, these Galatians. They believed it. They repented and believed it by grace. They received the gift of the outpoured Holy Spirit. And they began living a joy-filled, fruitful, powerful Christian life. Paul left town because he was a, a traveling, itinerating, church-planting evangelist and missionary and apostle. He wasn't going to stay there forever. And after he left, some other teachers came along, claiming to be Christians, but really who weren't. They're called by many theologians or interpreters, the Judaizers. And they came with a toxic brew, a combination of faith in Christ crucified and resurrected plus obedience to the law of Moses equals salvation. That's what it takes. You have to obey the laws of Moses. You have to become Jewish, basically. Circumcision, just the beginning of that journey. So if you will be circumcised and then obey the law of Moses, you can be saved. Paul calls this a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. In Galatians chapter 1. It says, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul then spends almost two full chapters establishing his own supernatural calling from God. How God called him by grace. And how God gave him the gospel from heaven. And this isn't a message that man made up. It's something that God gave to him directly. Not only to him, but also to those who are reputed to be pillars in Jerusalem. They're preaching the same gospel. And when it comes down to the key issue, justification, how can a sinner be made right with Almighty God? He says so plainly in Galatians 2.16, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Couldn't be clearer. That's Galatians 2.16. In many ways, that's the pinnacle of the doctrine of this book. Then he says plainly what his own relationship with Christ is. In Galatians 2.20, says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Having established his own proclamation of the gospel, his own walk with Christ, he then launches in in Galatians 3 and 4 to supporting this idea from Scripture. He supports it first from their own experience, saying, hey, you received the Holy Spirit when you heard and believed. But then he goes from that into a scriptural support of this. This isn't a new idea. This isn't a new doctrine. This is something that God established long ago. And he brings up the case of Abraham... In verse 6 of Galatians 3, he says, Consider Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So all you have to do is just believe in God, believe in Jesus Christ, and righteousness will be given you as a gift. So this is not a new idea, he's saying. Conversely, he says, everyone who relies on the law is under a curse. Galatians 3.10 For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. As we said, all the law, all the time, or you're cursed. Cursed with death, cursed with hell. So if you're trying to live under the law, that's what you have. 
But Christ redeemed us from that kind of life. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He absorbed the punishment we deserved on the cross. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us, verse 14, in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now, why was the law given? Well, it wasn't given to justify us. And it doesn't change the promise. The law was given as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And at the right time then, once we have come to faith in Christ, we become heirs of the whole estate. All of these things he's been saying, this is scriptural support. Now, in many ways, these verses culminate or finish his scriptural appeal. So Galatians 4, 21 through 31, as he goes back one more time to the Old Testament, he's finishing up his Old Testament support of this idea, justification by faith alone. Now, Galatians 5 and 6 is going to bring us into some awesome practical applications. And we're going to learn in those chapters how we can live out a life of faith, how we can live out a fruitful life, not doing whatever we want, as people accuse those that believe in justification by faith apart from works of doing. We throw off the law, we're antinomian, we do whatever we want. No, 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 we're going to find out. Galatians 5 and 6 is really the answer to that. Walking by the power of the Spirit, we live holy and godly lives. We're characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. We put to death the deeds of the flesh. We make alive fruit in the Spirit. It's a whole different kind of life. We're going to talk about that, God willing. All right, now let's look back at some of the historical facts that Paul's bringing us to here. The historical background, he's bringing us to the story of Hagar and Sarah and Abraham, of course, and their sons, uh, Hagar's son Ishmael and Sarah's son Isaac. And he's drawing some spiritual principles from this history. So, first of all, he speaks directly to the Galatians in verse 21. Tell me, he says... You who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? So he's speaking very directly, somewhat in in your face here. He's very concerned about these Galatians. He's making a direct appeal to them. These drifting brothers and sisters in Christ who are breaking his heart. And he appeals to them very directly here. And it says it seems like you want to be slaves. I don't understand it, but it seems like you want to be slaves under the law. Why would you want to do that? But now he makes this appeal. He says, aren't you aware of what the law says? Isn't it amazing how often this happens? Jesus did this a lot. You know, they'd come to Jesus with a problem and he'd say, haven't you read? Aren't we reading the same book here? Haven't you read this and that? Jesus does that again and again. Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? How he took the consecrated bread and he ate it. Or haven't you read that in the law those in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet they're held innocent? Or haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female, etc. the question on divorce? Or about resurrection? You're asking me about resurrection. Haven't you read in the passage about the burning bush what God says to you? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Haven't you read these things? And so Paul's doing this, you who want to be under the law, aren't you aware of what the law says? You could almost say, this is like a friendly lawyer saying, have you read the fine print here? Do you you realize what's in this contract? Do you know what you're signing on for? Before you put your signature at the bottom, let me tell you, I'm your friend, I'm a friend of the family and I'm a lawyer, and I'm telling you what's going to happen if you sign this. So if you go off in this direction, I just want to tell you what the law says. That's how he's arguing here. And what he's saying here is, The big picture is being a physical descendant of Abraham was never enough 
for the Jews. It doesn't save you. There are different sons of Abraham. He has two sons in this case. We're going to look at, at Ishmael and Isaac. But what really matters is to be an elect son or daughter of the living God, a child of promise, a child of the Spirit. That's what he's getting at here. John the Baptist, remember when the Pharisees and Sadducees came to where he was baptized? You remember he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Very strong word, isn't it? Don't rely on just being Jewish. Don't rely on the fact that you have Abraham as your father. Jesus said the same thing in John 8 to his enemies, the Jews that were in his face and opposing his ministry. Very strong. Abraham is our father, they said to Jesus. Remember that? And Jesus said, if Abraham were your father, you would do the works of Abraham. You would walk in the steps that Abraham walked. But as it is, you're trying to kill me. Someone who's told you the truth from God. Abraham didn't do those kinds of things. You are of your father the devil. So both John the Baptist and Jesus speaking very plainly to Jewish people that it's not enough to be physically descended from Abraham. It's not enough. And so Paul reminds us here is what the law says. Abraham had two sons. And he's going to draw some spiritual lessons from that. So we now know, need to go back to the tragic story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and what happened with them. Look at verse 22 and 23. It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of the promise. So we have to go back a little bit again to that great chapter, Genesis 15, in which God makes that beautiful promise to Abram As you remember, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer of Damascus, will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And then he took him outside and he said, Now look up at the heavens, look at the stars, and count them if you can. And then he makes this incredible promise. So shall your offspring be. It's going to be like that. It's going to be like that. And Abram believed the promise, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Key moment in redemptive history. So that's the promise. But then comes Genesis 16. The story unfolds. One of the great beauties of the Bible is it tells us the truth, even about its great heroes. And we, we, we could wish that Genesis 16 didn't happen, but it did. And so what happens there? Well, some years are passing. Many years have passed from the starry night, and nothing's going on. God is very patient. We're not so patient. (laughs) And God is waiting and and nothing's happening. God apparently is not acting on what he had promised. And Sarah saw that she continued to be barren. And by then she's 76. And Abram was 86. Now, you know back then the ages were different than they are now. People died at age 175. Abraham did and all. Things are different. But even then pretty much... Sarah said, the time for me bearing children is long past. It's over. She was barren anyway. They were barren and they couldn't have children. That had been proven for years. But now, even just in the normal course of things, as a woman, she's past that time. And so it's just, it's over. So what are we going to do? Now, I believe the Lord was waiting for that. 
I do believe he was waiting for her to be well beyond the time of bearing children and for Abraham to be well beyond that, even that expectation. He was waiting so that the child born could be so clearly a miracle baby. He wanted the baby to be a miracle of grace. But what happens now in Genesis 16? Sarah gets an idea. She has a thought. I, I think I'm going to help, help the situation along. And what's so amazing here is that we think God actually needs our help. He needs our cleverness. He needs us to intervene. He needs us to get involved. This is the mind of the flesh. And so she says in Genesis 16 two, the Lord has kept me from having children. That is true. It's true. But she drew the wrong conclusion. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Now Abraham himself at that point acted in self-reliance according to self-wisdom. God did not command this. Abraham was not looking to God to fulfill his promise. And as a result, Abraham lay with Hagar. She conceived and gave birth to a son, Ishmael. What the text says, what Galatians 4.29 says, the son born in the ordinary way or born according to the flesh. That's just a normal course of events. It's the son of the flesh, son born in the ordinary way, the son of the slave woman. Now the essence of life under the law is I'm on my own. I must think. I must act. I must choose. I must make this happen. If it's going to happen, I've got to do it. And take that to the nth degree. If I'm going to heaven, I need to do something about it. Living a bad life, I'm sinning, I acknowledge it. I need to do something about it. I need to change. It's the mind of the flesh. And so this is a very tragic venture into the flesh. And Ishmael was the son born of that way of thinking. Human power on its own, unaided, doing that. And trouble came into Abraham's family immediately because of it. I mean, as soon as Hagar was pregnant, she saw that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress, Sarai. Think lowly of her. I'm not going to have to do that. Do you know who I am now? I mean, this is Abraham's baby I'm carrying. Who are you? And so there's some disrespect going on there, whereupon then Sarai starts to mistreat her. And so it's trouble immediately, son of the flesh, immediately bringing distress into the world. By contrast, we have Isaac. Isaac is the child of the promise. God waits some time, you know. Genesis 17, God speaks very plainly. If you know what to look for, Genesis 17, 1, I think is the verse. Very clear rebuke. I am God Almighty, he says to Abraham. Walk before me and be holy. So if you know what to look for, that's a rebuke. He said, don't do that. Trust in me and do holy things and walk before me. And he changes his name to Abraham And then he says this in Genesis 17, God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai, her name will be Sarah. And I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Be very clear about what woman is going to give birth to the miracle baby. Very, very clear. Genesis 18, he's even clearer about the time frame. Remember when the three visitors came and Abraham entertained angels unawares. He didn't know who they were. And uh, God Almighty there. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah will have a son. 
So now we've even got the time frame set. We've got the woman, and then you've got the time frame. So then the fulfillment comes in Genesis 21. God fulfilled his promise by his sovereign power. By the power of his grace, he fulfilled his promise in Sarah's life. Look at, I don't know if you're there, but just listen. Just listen. Don't turn there. It won't take too long. But Genesis 21.1 is a God-saturated verse if you know what to look for. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Verse 2, Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. And Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. All right, let me reread Genesis 21.1, emphasizing God. Emphasizing the Lord's activity. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah. The, The sovereign Lord gave her grace. Just as the Lord had said to her, In other words, based on the promise he had made. And the Lord did for Sarah, sovereign grace, what the Lord had promised her. It's like four times he says, this is something I am doing. This is a a supernatural, this is a miracle baby being born here. Would not be born if I weren't involved. And so the Lord showed her grace and she gave birth to Isaac. And Abraham, we're told in Romans 4, through this time was filled with faith about all of this. And this is really the whole point here. Listen to the words of Romans 4, 19 through 21. Without weakening in his faith, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And if you go even a few verses before that in Romans, Romans 4.17, it speaks of the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Now, this is the whole point. What is Jesus doing for you? You know what he's doing? He's rescuing you from sin and death. He's going to raise you from the dead. He's going to give you a resurrection body. You're going to live forever and ever. Now, what can the arm of flesh do to achieve that? Nothing. As we said before, what are your plans on raising yourself from the dead? I mean, this is important. I want to sit down with you like an insurance salesman. I want to to say this is important. This is more important than any financial planning you'll do. What are your plans? You're going to die. Okay? How are you going to raise yourself from the dead? What do you think about doing about that? I want each of you to face that question. What are your plans on raising yourself from the dead? Various strategies I could suggest to you, friends. Don't you see the point? You can't raise yourself from the dead. You need to trust in the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Only God can raise the dead. And so Isaac was born. He's a miracle baby. He's a fulfillment of the promise. He's born as a direct result of a supernatural work of God's grace by the Holy Spirit. He was born only to the glory of God, not to the cleverness of some human scheme or plot or plan or act of the will. Born only to the glory of God. And this is exactly what God has said said Christians are. This is what we are. Think about John chapter 1. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Speaking about the Jews. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God who were born not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. That's exactly what this text is all about. We're not born in the natural way. We were born by God and by his grace. As it says in John 3, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh, but whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then he says in verse 8 of John 3, The wind blows wherever it wishes, wherever it wills. And you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That's what he's talking about here. Ishmael, then, is a type of a normal human being. Normal passions, normal pleasures, normal appetites, normal drives. And he will die. Unless he's converted, he will die as a slave. But Isaac is a miracle baby, supernaturally born, supernaturally sustained by the grace of God. And by the grace of God, by the promise of God, he is an heir of the kingdom. So what are you? (laughs) What are you? Now next week we're going to talk about this allegory. We're going to talk about allegorical interpretation. We're going to give a little bit of the history of it. This is why I said, look, I practiced the sermon this morning. There is no hope. Of us getting into allegory right now. No hope whatsoever. I'm on page 8 of a 20 page sermon. Zero hope. This is right here. No hope. No chance. Can't be done. And I don't like mitosis. I I fight it every week. I think it's tough. All right, But let me just give you a general sense of the allegory. Okay, Hagar represents the old covenant. Which gives birth. Law gives birth to law children. Who are slaves for the rest of their lives. And they're condemned. They're under the curse of the law. Sarah, who's actually not mentioned, but she's implied here, the free woman, is the Jerusalem that's above, and she is our mother, and our true home is heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem. Paul actually presses it, and we'll go into this next week, but he says the Jerusalem that's below, the physical Jerusalem, she's in bondage. She's in slavery. Do you realize what he's saying there? He's saying Jews who have not come to faith in Christ are no different than Ishmael's. Wow. I mean, that's not going to be very popular. But that's exactly what he's saying. Spiritually, they are Ishmael's. They are Esau's in another verse. All right? There's no difference. They are unbelievers. And they're in bondage. This Jerusalem that's below is earthly and law-oriented and bondage. And he's speaking to these Gentiles. Why would you want to live there? Let's live above, in the Jerusalem that's above. Let's live in the heavenly home that is our country. Our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. And we're looking forward, Hebrews 11, to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. That's the heavenly Jerusalem. If I'm not careful, I'll preach next week's sermon, so I'm going to stop. All right? We'll talk about the allegory. Now, application for us. Verse 28. You, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. I gave it to you at the beginning. I'll give it to you here at the end. You are supernaturally born if you're truly a a Christian. Truly a Christian. Understand who you are. Understand how you got here. How did you get to believe in Jesus? It wasn't as an act of your will. It wasn't because you had more cleverness or more. God gave you birth. He sovereignly worked in your life. He took out your heart of stone and he gave you a heart of flesh. That's what happened. You should know that. You should know that. But I want to stop and say, has that happened to you? I'm speaking to a large group here. I'm speaking to a mixed group. 
I'm speaking even to you people on the balcony. I know I forget to look at you, but I love you. And I want, I just, but I know you're there. But there's a group up and below, a big group. I don't know you all. And I don't know necessarily what's happening in your hearts, even if I do know you. Has this happened to you? Have you been born again by the Spirit? Are you clinging to the promises of God and not to your own works? Are you saying, I am saved by grace and there's nothing I can do to pay for my sins? I know I'm a sinner. I know the law has convinced me I'm a sinner, but there is no remedy for me other than Jesus. I trust in him. Has that happened to you? Are you born again? Born again by sovereign grace. And how do you fit into Tim Keller's matrix? How are you living? Are you living as as a law-relying, so-called law-abiding? Nobody's that way, but you think you are. Are you pharisaical, trusting in your own obedience to a legalistic standard? Is that you? Are you law-relying but law-disobeying? You're miserable. You, you, You think, I've got to earn my way. I've got to earn, 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 but I'm not, and I'm failing. I'm so depressed and so discouraged all the time. Is that you? Or maybe you, this isn't anybody here, or maybe it is, but you're going to work with some people or some neighbors that are making up their own moral standards and living up to them as best they can, and they're very judgmental if you don't live up to their moral standards and all. Those are our neighbors, friends. Those are our neighbors. Are we reaching them with the gospel? Are you truly law-obeying but not law-relying? That's a Christian, right? In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Romans 8, who do not live by the flesh but by the Spirit. We'll get into that in Galatians 5. But is that the life you're living? And, and Keller says very wisely, you have tendencies toward the others. What are your tendencies? Are you legalistic? Are you depressed because you're not living up to that standard? Do you just not care that much what the law says? It doesn't matter to you because you're a Christian. We're all saved by grace anyway. What are you living like? And are you clinging to the promises? Do you realize what, how rich we are? In the promise. I mean, I've got a listing here of promises. These are, these are amazing, and I'm not going to read them all, but think about it. Full forgiveness of sins is promised to us. We're clinging to that. Our sins are forgiven. God's promised that. He's promised that we will be, have been adopted into his family. He's promised that we will be heirs of the world. The righteous will be heirs of the world. It's, it, the meek will inherit the earth. Are you clinging to that? Do you have the Holy Spirit in your heart as a deposit guaranteeing your full inheritance? Do you feel how rich you are as a child of God? That you're an heir of a coming kingdom? Do you have your heart set fully on that coming kingdom? Even though you can't see it with your eyes, can you read it in Revelation 21? The new Jerusalem coming down from heaven as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And it's described in those two magnificent chapters. And it's just a radiant, beautiful, perfect place. And you know you're going to go there. You're qualified to go there because of imputed righteousness. Trusting in Jesus. Praise God. Is that the kind of life you're living? Now I'm going to talk more about this next time. But do you expect to be persecuted by Ishmael? Look at verse 29. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. And we'll talk about this more next week. But the most vicious and the bitterest persecutors of true Christians in history have been religious people. Religious people. Okay? Again and again. Right away, it was the Sanhedrin that cracked down in uh, Jerusalem and started beating and killing. Who was it that killed Stephen? Stephen. Religious people, right, who stoned Stephen to death. 
and on it's gone since that time. All of history has seen this pattern again and again. The bitterest attacks have come from those that are fiercely committed to religion. And it's been going on all the way through. And nowadays, the most vicious persecutions of true Christians are done by religious committed people. Mostly Muslims. Mostly Muslims. I think nine of the top ten most viciously persecuting nations, political nations on earth, are Muslim nations. I think that's the ultimate fulfillment of the things this chapter is talking about. We'll talk about this next time, but this is the spirit of Ishmael. The spirit of self-salvation through legalistic works righteousness flowing right from Arabia and from the law that comes from that mountain. It's the spirit of Ishmael and it's what's persecuting the church today. So, what does that have to do with us? Well, just understand what it says about the present and what it says about the future. At present, your brothers and sisters are suffering at the hands of religious zealots. Not just in Muslim countries, but also in India. There's, there's the zealotry there as well. Let's be faithful to pray for them. Let's be faithful to know their sufferings, to understand what they're going through. And then what does it say about our future? Just expect to be persecuted more and more here in this country because we just don't fit in. And we're going to fit in less 25, 50 years from now if the Lord tarries than we do now. Expect that persecution. And then finally, if I could just urge you, live like a freeborn son and daughter of the living God. Let's not have that legalistic mindset. When you sin, bring it to the cross. Receive by grace forgiveness and restoration. Don't go legal at that moment. That's our tendency. I've done wrong. I've sinned. What can I do to make it right? Repent and believe. Come again to the flow, the the blood of Christ for forgiveness. And then, by the Spirit, allow that supernatural life to be working in you. Now, next time, we're going to talk about allegory. We're going to talk about allegorical interpretation. We're going to say what it is, when it's appropriate, when it's not. Pray for me that I'd have better insight and clarity. But we'll have some time next time to discuss it. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had today to study your word. And I pray that you would help each one of us to take to heart the things that we've learned here. Help us to realize that if we're Christians, we are miracles of your grace. And help us to live by the power of the Spirit, not out of the acts of the flesh. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.